Welcome to The Independent Entrepreneur, available online at www.indiebizshow.com. My name is Sean Salisbury, and today we're talking with Jeff Yoke, founder and CEO of ConnectFu, an internet startup focusing on enhancing the social networking experience of conference going. Jeff is taking the CEO role for the first time in his new startup and shares with us his ideas about helping others, ideas versus execution, and the value of transparency. And with that, we turn to Jeff Yoke, who's joining us today via Skype from his office in Southern California. Jeff, we start with the same question we ask all our guests, which is, what was your first meaningful job and how would it influence your future career? My first meaningful job was right out of college. I graduated college at 20 and went to work for Trout Trading Management Company, which is a commodity pool operator. They had a, one of the more successful derivatives trading systems around at the time, and they wanted to diversify into some other areas and have securities and things like that traded. But they kind of went an unusual route. They wanted computer people and math people and not necessarily finance people. And so I kind of fit that bill and ended up taking the job. It had a lot of positive influences on me. One of the most interesting was uh, I kind of learned math and computing, uh, despite having sold myself, not dishonestly, as an expert after the college experience doing it. Uh, But the math in particular, you you really learn things like that a lot better when you actually have to apply it to a real subject matter rather than kind of learning it in academia. But I think the, uh, the impact that it had that I carried forward that was more profound and ultimately is part of what motivates me to do the business I'm doing now is that kind of relates to one of the peculiarities of my position there. When you have one of the more successful programs around in finance and then you bring in people who don't know anything about finance but are good at math, what would tend to happen is they would tend to suck dry what everybody around them knows and then maybe kind of try to extend it and move forward. The problem with that is with commodities, you're not limited by funds under management as you are the amount of risk you're willing to take. So generating a positive result that's highly correlated with what they're already doing has minimal value. So what they did is they kind of physically secluded those of us who came in kind of with this pilot program so that we would be forced to learn the finance part of it and come up with things that they hoped would also be profitable but uncorrelated thus enabling uh, the overall returns of the fund to be higher. So the practical aspect of that was that I was 20 years old. I was living on the island of Bermuda, cut off from anyone I knew. (laughs) First time I was out of any kind of rich social environments of academia. And I went most days without, literally without hearing another human voice for a long time. And I kind of went crazy doing that. I, I did it for a little over a year. It was very successful from a financial trading perspective, but it made me really appreciate the value of relationships and of people in my life. And when I left, I ended up leaving to kind of re-nurture relationships, even without a clear idea of what I do on a career level. But uh, I find myself now, two decades later, trying to build a business to help people form relationships better. No, that, that's really interesting, uh, you know, the, the contrast, especially with what you're doing now. Tell us what ConnectFoo is uh, and how it got started and that kind of thing. ConnectFoo forms social networks around conferences and other events. We sign up conference organizers to create out, build out a, a set of facilities for the people who are going to be attending their event. They provide their attendee list, which we lock down with good privacy controls. 
And then the people who are going to be attending are notified of the resource. And beforehand, they can plan social aspects of the event that uh, they can do. They can schedule meetings. They can do things like that to make the the event more valuable for them. During the event, we harness the social media already being generated by the attendees of the event to provide them with a single place to access it, whether it be through Twitter hashtags or the Twitter accounts of attendees or other uh, update channels that exist. And then perhaps most importantly, afterwards, we provide a mechanism for them to network with each other and sort of deepen the connections they made and maybe make some of the ones they wish they had made. Oh, that's great. That's great. So basically, a conference attendee can really get a lot more value out of attending a conference and and staying in touch with people afterwards and and make that process a lot easier. That's right. And it was kind of driven out of a personal itch of mine that I wanted to scratch. My personal temperament is such that I go to an event, I meet a fascinating person, I want to deeply engage with them, and I end up spending the whole time developing a deeper relationship. And that's great, but I might have a great relationship with that person and miss the other 499 relationships that might have been beneficial. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the more salesy guy who might come back with fistfuls of business cards, but didn't really meet anyone or engage with anyone. And by kind of extending both in time and into a different media channel, the ability to do that interaction, you broaden the scope of people being able to make real genuine connections through events. So tell us about that kind of aha business idea in terms of I, this is something, this is some need that I need to fill. I want to create it. Tell us about how that happened. I was working uh, a few years ago and a friend of mine approached me with a similar idea. And at first it wasn't something that I really wanted to attack. I didn't really see the full-fledged opportunity that existed. But as I started to look for something to do late, late last year, I realized that there was a real change in the social media landscape, if you will. The social graph you know, through, that has become so extensive, developed by people like Facebook and LinkedIn, that the connections between people are really kind of available and they're portable. They can be brought into new projects, which is an, an incredible service and an incredible value. But there isn't the ability to really kind of handle specialized sorts of relationships very well. You're either friends or connections or whatever it's called on a particular site, or you're not. And uh, that, keeps, that keeps good track of where the connections are, but doesn't allow you to differentiate the various kinds of relationships you have. You interact differently with your old college buddies and your current friends that you do things with and your coworkers and your family and things of that sort. And that kind of resurrected this old idea of what about events? If you go to a thousand-person event, you don't want to add the thousand people who attended that event to Facebook or to LinkedIn. It would totally drown out everything else that's going there. And that was kind of the aha. I, I really want to create a place where you can get the kind of value that's possible to get out of attending an event, having a shared experience, and develop the beginnings of a relationship through that medium, and then extend that in whatever way is appropriate, whether that be to other social networking type sites or through personal interactions, phone, email, wherever it goes from there. What's the business model for ConnectFoo? Conference organizers pay to create the network. Uh It's a a value add for the attendees because they're going to get this additional social component, but it also provides a deeper and ongoing channel for both the organizers and potentially sponsors of the event to provide materials to the attendees. So people are using our service already to do things like provide videos of the talks, 
audios of talks, ongoing question and answers with uh, speakers and other and other presenters, limited private messaging from sponsors to attendees. So there's a lot of value for the conference organizers, and they're willing to pay for it. And when we started, we contemplated having it be optionally free for the conferences, and we would sell the sponsorships because it's such a high-value thing to collect a group of like-minded people who are, who are committed enough to a particular thing to actually travel somewhere to attend an, an event. We quickly found that none of the conference organizers had the slightest interest in doing this because the costs involved in working with us were small relative to everything else, and they didn't want us monkeying around in their sponsorship ecosystem. Hmm. So while eventually we may get back more involved with that, but have the relationship be primarily with the organizers and look at it as an additional source of revenue for them, Right now, it's, it's a strict paper service that the organizers put forward. So how long have you been around? I know that you're a startup. How did you go about financing the starting of the business? Tell us about that. Well, I have the advantage of a long product development background myself. I've worked with internet companies for the last 15 years, mostly in Southern California, companies like Idea Lab and Shopzilla and City Search, wow. and several times gone through the first couple guys through exit, in one case an IPO, other times private equity exits. So the, the building of the product part was honestly the easy part, given the core competencies we have and, and uh, some of the other people I've involved. And at first I thought about growing it completely organic without funding because of that. I actually kind of fell backward into to deciding to try to accelerate with a bit of funding through talking to one of my close friends about the thing, he said, you know, when I explained that part of it, he asked the same question. I said, well, you know, it's, it's so cheap to host now. It's so cheap to provide the service. And given that we can build it ourselves, I thought we'd try to get some traction before we actually went out and started doing fundraising. And his response was, well, how am I supposed to invest in and get rich then? And I kind of laughed and, you know, joked about it. And he kept pushing a little bit and I thought, oh, okay, I'll shut that down. I'm like, well, how big a check do you want to write? And he told me, and that was very attractive. And uh, so I didn't agree right away. I, I actually went away and thought about it some and, and tried to kind of rework the business plan and said, okay, well, if we raised a substantial seed round, what could we do and what could we do faster? Mm-hmm. And coming up with good answers to that, we started a Series A round of collecting $500,000 and found other interesting people that I'd worked with before, some of the uh, people's businesses who, who I've helped to build who were very interested in participating as well. So that's actually where we are right now is we're, we're partway through raising that round. We've worked with some of the people that were kind of, you know, easy, lots of personal background, things like that. And right now I'm kind of reaching out to the professional angel community to try to, uh, to, to close the rest of that round. No, that's interesting. And I think a lot of startups, they sort of face this question of should we grow it organically or should we get funding? You know, what kind of strings are attached to it? Will it help us grow faster? Can you talk a little bit more about some of those calculations that you make in terms of making that decision? Because, you know, when I was at Box Office Mojo, for example, we were approached a number of times by people for that kind of thing. And and all of those times we rejected that because, you know, we wanted to grow it organically and on our own. But, you know, I do see the other side of that as well. And and so could you just talk about that a little bit, that decision-making process and that calculation that that you make? Sure. Um, There were kind of two decisions. Uh, Some of the people that I really helped were willing to do it without any of those kinds of strings, just buy common stock and, you know, the, 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 all the kinds of things that, that are set up in preferred rounds to avoid various ways that entrepreneurs can go off track. You know, one is a big an issue because those people were confident 
in me because of the relationship we had. But we actually went through the effort of structuring something that we thought was balanced between investors and founders to provide the sorts of things that external people would want. And and I I became slavishly dedicated to studying the material that was out there. There's a lot of great resources, Brad Feld and his his series on term sheets and, and generally felt thoughts in general, Mark Suster with both sides of the table and other people I knew who were just kind of in the community and in the, in the fundraising community. And I sort of learned, you know, what goes wrong, what kind of terms can be used in various bad ways and, and things that could happen. And I found it was possible to create a structure that provided reasonable influence and reasonable protection but kept us all on the same side of the table, if you will, in creating it. I, I don't mind going through some of those details if that's actually interesting. I'm not sure. Sure, I mean, because basically you're talking about, you know, aligning your interests with the investor interests and, and that kind of thing, right? Right. Right. Some of the things that we considered in, in doing that are, for instance, uh, putting in a liquidation preference, a 1x non-participating liquidation preference. And for those people uh, who may be listening to the show who aren't familiar with that, what that means is that you know, we have a $2 million pre-money valuation, $2.5 million post-money for the $500,000 round. Let's say things go wrong or we decide to do a quick feature sale or something like that, and we sold the company for a half a million dollars or a million dollars. Right. Well, the percentage basis that the people have who invested the money, if they just if there were no liquidation preference, they, they would get the the portion of those proceeds uh, commensurate with the percentage of the company they owned. And that's not really fair. So what a, what a 1x liquidation preference does gives them their money first. So in the case of such a fire sale, they would get their initial money back. Right. It's non-participating, so they don't get a percentage of the upside. But, of course, they can convert their stock to common stock and participate in the event of a bigger sale. So m- most of the, the terms of such a round, you know, we found were things that would protect them against various kinds of downside and various kinds of risk and, and even various kinds of decisions I might make, seeing, seeing as we'll be dealing with investors who are arm length, who don't, arm's length, who don't have uh, such a background with me. So, you know, to protect them against various kinds of bad outcome like that. They get participation on the board, directors, one of the three slots on our board of directors, Lots of protective provisions, uh, the ability to veto sales of the company, uh, other issues of that sort. And and I found something that, you know, it's very difficult to imagine with most of the provisions that we have that, that, you know, we could really end up with a conflict of interest. Essentially, the, the terms that we came up with prevent that kind of conflict from arising. I see. So, so the so the lesson at the end of the day basically is is to really make sure that if you have investors that, that your interests are aligned and that you account for all the possible outcomes that, that could happen and what would happen in those instances. Sure. These people are partners. These are people that I'm looking for more for more from than just the money that they put into the company. I need their their influence, their help, their advice, their connections. I need all those things. Sure. And the flip side of that is is that they need this to be something that's protected and, and safe and, and as much as you can be with a startup. I mean, we're all taking business risk, but their interests are concerned too. And I, and I think we found a good mix of those things. So uh, how many people do you have at uh, ConnectFu? Is it, do you have employees now, or is it a small startup team? Tell us about that. It, it is a very small team. We have five people working with the company, several still unpaid. Uh, you know, we're still at the beginning of the fundraising process, and 
those who have been able to not take salaries uh, are not taking salaries. But uh, we anticipate filling that out. Mostly it's on the engineering side at this point. I have to carry most of the rest of the load uh, as well as some of the engineering as well. But uh, it's something that uh, you know, I've been really flattered and uh, humbled by the experience that I've had. We actually haven't recruited and sought anyone yet. Everyone who's involved in the business is someone who I shared what I was doing, and they said, well, I want to I want to get involved. I want to do that, too, and just started helping. And then as the scope of their involvement got greater, then we formalized the relationships a little more. So tell us about how you're marketing the product. You said you have a few people using it already and, and paying customers. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you go out and acquire those customers? Most of the customers we already have are either personal connections of mine or in actually many of the cases, people who were running events that I was already attending. So that's not the planned model as much as just how the first paying pilot customers have, uh, have originated. And those are, uh, they've been our greatest teachers so far. I've been often been surprised by what they want, what they didn't want. And you know, what they said would make this the dream product for them. And it's enabled us to, I've had to walk a fine line between not doing custom development for somebody's particular problems and at the same time learning what was true for them that was going to be true of the market broadly. We have a little bit of a challenge in finding a scalable distribution channel, and I guess every startup does. We're at a low enough price point that, well, first of all, there's always the self-serve. We become known and attain attention and people can come and sign events and that works but that's not something to rely on early the kind of obvious thing everybody run, would run for after that is uh, enterprise sales you know uh, at first personally and then hire people to go out and approach conferences and sign them up and uh, have that generate more revenue that costs but that's a big challenge with sales that are relatively low dollar and are either non-recurring or in our case uh, they're usually recurring but they're very long-term, like an annual conference or something of that right. sort. So the first kind of customer development hypothesis we're exploring is building a uh, sort of referral business channel where we take a professional event organizers who set up many events, and they go out for an event now, and they find keynote speakers and hotels and venues and all the other things that you need to put on an event, and organize all of that for the actual conference organizers and adding, providing social networking for the attendees to their suite of services. That industry totally works that way already. So, you know, when you, when your professional event organizer goes out and finds a particular venue, it's because in part they're sharing the revenue with that venue. Uh, almost everything they do is on a rev share basis with uh, various services they provide. So this this dovetailed very nicely with that, and every event organizer we've talked to, and I'm not talking about the people who run conferences, but the people who set up conferences and facilitate them for others, has been extremely excited. And we've even found one person who sets up about a dozen big conferences every year, who not only wants to set up all of hers, but wants to help us craft what this program should look like, how the rev share should work, what kind of services they need in order to manage it. 
uh, and things of that sort. And uh, she'll probably hear this, but uh, <laughs> uh, my, my my hope that so far is not is uh, a little bit below the surface is that we will convince her that that's much more exciting than doing the other things that she's doing and help us uh, run that on an ongoing basis. If that works, and and that may not ultimately be the way we end up trying to attack this market, but it seems like a very attractive place to start. No, that's great. And, and, and it's kind of interesting that, you know, you've mentioned a number of times uh, things that you've learned as you've gone into the business and started it, like starting to try, try to acquire customers or features for the, the product and whatnot. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about sort of the, you, you have this idea for the company and what it's going to do, obviously, but you've learned a lot on the way and you adjust. Can you talk about your strategy in doing that? How important is that in, in growing your business and, th- and that kind of thing? Sure. I'm, I'm going to quote Steve Blank a lot and uh, sound smart because he came up with all the ideas. Steve Blank, for those who don't know, is uh, one of the real thought leaders in how to do this sort of thing. wrote a book called Four Steps to the Epiphany and talked a lot about this particular thing. And one of the distinctions he made that I really take to heart is that a mature business is one that executes a scalable business model and a startup is a company that is in search of a scalable business model. And I regard it as our job, and his books are a lot of help. I recommend them to anyone trying to do this sort of thing, to develop hypotheses around how this might be done based on you know what you like, what you think the, the market wants, who you think the market is, and then validate those hypotheses or invalidate them. So we, we go through a lot of, all right, this seems to make sense, this seems like it should be saleable. What, at minimum, do we have to do in order to verify that or prove that it's not true, get an answer, and then either make an adjustment or continue to do more of it? And so yeah, I try to look at what we do as, as much as possible as asking questions rather than trying to drive on an answer where the only basis we have for a particular answer is you know, our team's best guess. You know, you explore your best guesses, but you don't regard them as necessarily right. Dig in your heels and try to follow them through regardless of what happens. It's kind of a funny story uh, about the first major set of those that happened, though. It's not in that steep like model. It, it actually came from just advice from uh, somebody I really value, a guy named Brad Feld. I, I happen to meet, I have an occasion to, uh, to communicate with him on a completely unrelated topic and, uh, of course, included a paragraph about the business that we're trying to run, trying to do with it, and invited any kind of interest or involvement he might not be interested in having. He was kind enough to write back and say he was very familiar with the space. He funded a company in 2007 called EventView that tried to tackle the very similar space, and that company ultimately uh, didn't succeed. And he sent me uh, the postmortem they did on what had happened, everything they did they shouldn't have, and everything that uh, they should have done they didn't. And uh, I had a, a very mixed emotion evening reading that, sitting there looking at my plan in one hand and that postmortem in the other. And those things were entirely more similar than I, than I was comfortable <laughs> with. <laughs> so uh, that kind of gave me the ability to uh, learn from three years of mistakes of some, for some really smart guys with some great resources and realize that some of the things that I hadn't really given a lot of thought to needed to have a lot more attention spent on them. For instance, uh, a lot of the ROI tracking and specifically attendance increase that was going to really drive conference adoption. 
And that, that postmortem, by the way, to the extent that you're interested in this space, that postmortem is available on the internet. You can search for it. The company is Event View, and V U E. Okay. So you've been involved in a lot of uh, startups in the past. You have a strong technical background and whatnot. Why transition to the CEO role? I mean, do you see yourself in that role as the company grows? How are you liking it? Uh, and what advice can you give to other maybe developers or, or other people who sort of dream or wish that they could be in the CEO position? Well, I would say to ask why. That was kind of several questions, but yeah. I'll hit the last part first um, about developers who, who want to run things. Mm-hmm. I've hired high hundreds of engineers over the course of my career and interviewed you know, into thousands. And I won't say a majority, but a very substantial group among them end up feeling that there's something kind of dumb or frustrating about the company that they're working for and that they could do it much better and, and things of that sort. And I think they need to ask themselves why they really want to make that transition because I think that emerges mostly out of they see whatever the consequences are of a big complex business system upon their relatively narrow job. And they say, well, just viewing this very narrow job, I could do this, this, and this, and that, that would be better. And they extend that to the assumption that they could do the whole thing better. Right. And, you know, if you're embedded in some great company or, or even not, you know, even just good company that is pushing for too fast deadlines, in your opinion, or something like that, that's causing your job to be frustrating, that, that doesn't mean that you, you have the key that if you were just doing the same thing, but on your own, you'd be doing it much better. I would say probably the greatest warning sign that you should consider if you're in that kind of boat is if the business idea you have is to basically go into the business of the company you're working for now, except you're going to do things right, it would probably be a much better thing to try, at least at first, to communicate with the other people in the business and try to improve it where you are. And you you may just meet meet reticence and and people who who aren't willing to embrace your engagement, but I think the, the rule... That that's the exception, and the rule is that people will listen to you, and you can learn about the sorts of things that cause the decisions to be the way they are. And you might have a positive impact, which is incredibly gratifying. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you the question then: Why? Why did you want Why? to transition to the CEO role? Yes, I've always had an entrepreneurial bent before I got into technology. Even I had a I had a successful travel business uh, that was many years ago, and I kind of got into technology. I, mean, I had the training, and then I had the 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 finance job that I described, which is highly technical. So I had the background, but the last thing I did for that travel business was uh, decide that we should try to sell our packages on this new fangled worldwide web thing in 95. And <laughs> I felt, fell in love with it. So that, that's, that's always been kind of a, an inclination of mine to be entrepreneurial, but it wouldn't have caused me to make the transition that I did. I've had incredibly gratifying experiences as a senior technical person, with a lot of really great companies. I mean, getting to work with Bill Gross at Idea Lab, getting to work with Lauren Singh and Fred Chu at uh, Oversee.net and some of those experiences have just been fantastic for me. And I would have welcomed other ones. The thing that finally drove me to start my first real tech startup was this idea, really believing it was the right time. Not only a great idea, but just it couldn't have been done two years earlier effectively. And it was, it's desperately needed now, and I really wanted to do it, and I wanted it to exist. I don't know if I'm quoting someone or not, but <laughs> I think probably the best reason to want to do this is you just you simply can't stand the idea that the thing doesn't exist, so you have to go build it. Mm-hmm. 
No, that's great. That's great. And you're, you know, you're kind of a, a serial entrepreneur. You've been involved in a lot of startups. Let's say this thing is successful. It takes off. It gets big. Do you see yourself sticking around, or are you kind of more the type of guy who's going to go and start another one? Tell us about your thinking in that area. I think I'm going to be sticking around at least for a good long time. My career has a sort of repeating pattern of going from, say, four to ten people and two-story walk-up and air conditioning is a problem and an idea and everybody's intense to getting to two or three or four hundred people. Sometimes I've been lucky enough that that was an exit, but other times not. And at that point, the fleets of MBAs show up and I've kind of technical work tends to become more about maintenance or compliance or other things than the real innovation, and I've left at that point. Whether or not, as a CEO, that would have a... There, there might be a similar pattern, I don't know. I recognize that there are a lot of skills that are needed as a manager, that at some point the company may have... It may outgrow me in the sense of those, and there may be some better choice. So I, I think I'll always be open to what is actually best for the business. But from sort of a leadership perspective, this is my passion. I may not know something about the market or something even about the product or something about design or presentation, and I go learn. But the drive to make this happen is not something... You know, I could go find an engineer who's smarter than I am right now who could do a better job on that part of it than me. I could certainly go find a marketer who knows more about marketing than I do. Right now, I can't conceive of finding someone else who has the kind of passion and drive to make this exist and to make it great that I have. And I don't know what might change that over time because I'm starting, starting with that and over years of building it and making it grow and nurturing it, that's going to intensify. So I don't currently have any plans to, to ever go anywhere. <laughs> but uh, at, the same, at the same time, I've never run a large public company. I've never run even a very, very large private company, at least in the top seat. And if what my baby needs is something else, you know, you know, I've watched like people that I'm familiar with, like at Twitter, you know, making transitions into uh, you know more product-oriented roles. Um, I've seen that happen in a lot of companies, actually. Sure. Could something like that happen eventually? I, I don't see any reason to rule it out. Okay. So you mentioned before in the past that uh, you know you've hired many engineers and employees in the past. Can you tell us for people who are out there looking to to hire uh, people for their company? How do you go about finding good people to work for you? And, and what is your philosophy when it comes to hiring and, and having employees? I always look for hiring the, the very best people possible. I allow as sort of a footnote that maybe there are very large organizations that can invest in the development of junior people or who can segment the nature of the work that they have in such a way that junior people can, can contribute. It's just absolutely not true in startups. Everybody needs to be a blazing, another buzzword I'll avoid is rock star, but, and you don't want that, that, that rock star superior attitude in a lot of ways. But what you do need is people who can be self-motivated, self-directed, crackly brilliant, and just amaze you every day with the kinds of things that they can develop. In established companies, when I've done hiring, much to the frustration frequently of HR departments, I almost refuse to look at resumes. I don't refuse because it's easier to just 
accept them than to not, but I don't really pay any attention. There are a few things that you might look for, like, you know, oh, the person went to Caltech, that's, they're probably smart, uh, and things like that, but but it's it's a very minor thing. So I do brief phone screenings to try to check attitude and to see if they talk like the sort of technologist leader that I'm used to dealing with. And then I rely very heavily on the interview, both to see the the passion and also uh, grill them on it for hours on whiteboards uh, to, to make sure that they can really do amazing things. You know, I look at code they write, I make them write code on the spot, I make them solve hard algorithmic problems. I'm a fan of the puzzly type things in interviews, though not in the bad way. We won't go into what the bad way is. It's not about coming up with the right answer. It's about, you know, I will push and give them harder and harder problems until they can't solve them. And then I'll watch how they try to solve the ones they can't solve. And Right, so it's more about observing their thought process than actually how they solve the problem. Right. And then there's another piece of, you know, looking for the team. Are they going to get culture fit? Are they going to be able to work with me and with the other people that I want to work with? I talked to somebody not too long ago that were actually, uh, it might be our first kind of traditional recruited, brought on kind of person rather than somebody who knows me and wants to work on it because it's my project. And the first question he asked me, and he didn't let me talk very long. I, I try not to talk very long anyway. I try to get them talking, but he didn't let me talk very long. And the first question he asked me is, well, why are you passionate about, your, about the job? Why do you want to work there? And, you know, I already, that, that got me real excited <laughs> um, right from the beginning because, you know, he wasn't asking me about salary and stock options and, or technologies we use in our stack and things like that. And all the things they tend to ask you first when you, when you kind of give them an open stance, they're like, all right, why am I going to be like so excited that I can't stand the idea of not coming to work by trying to get it why I'm that way? Probably that was going to be a skilled person because you don't get that from unskilled people. And probably it was somebody who's going to be a fit. And sure enough, this is a guy who's you know worked with a lot of the leading tech companies in the Bay. He's willing to uh, relocate down here for this idea if it works out like it's a fit. We've done, you know, Skype and online versions of some of the whiteboardy stuff, and he's stunning. I look for people like that. And that, of course, then extends to other types of work as well. Just most of my previous hiring experience is hiring technologists. Sure, sure. So every company has a core set of metrics that they look at to track their success. I know you're sort of in the early startup stage, but what metrics are you looking at on a regular basis to measure your progress in, in, in uh, ConnectFu? I would love to answer that question, but that's one of the things we're trying to figure out right now. Some of the things that work well in other companies, I think, would be a little bit kidding ourselves. For instance, uh, the, the account growth, it kind of fails on both the upper and lower side of what could be strong in other cases. Because at least as of today, and this may change literally within a month, but at least as of today, the only way people get into our well, you can come in and create an account through the front door, but it's it's not a very enriching experience. But really, the way people get accounts is through a conference organizer signing up and adding all their attendees. So when I think it was yesterday or something like that, we got 700 new attendees. You know, that's a great number. And at this stage, I, just having been around for for a bit over a month. You know, you'd be thrilled about a day where 700 people showed up. Right. But what that meant was that one person decided that this was the thing to do and that they were willing to pay for it, and everybody showed up. So more intuitively, we look at, okay, well, what do they do when they get there? Do they talk to each other? Do they create, fill out their profiles and add pictures and Twitter IDs and email addresses and phone numbers and 
addresses and then set privacy settings around who can see them among connections and the public and things like that. You know, are they actively engaged and participating? So I think that we'll have to do a little work rather than relying on some of the standard industry metrics like bounce rate and things like that that people look at because the, the engagement is of a different sort. And I definitely know it when I see it. When I see a guy who gets on there and puts in the next three events that aren't even customers of ours yet so that all of his plans are in there and fills out his profile and participates in the forums and like, yeah, that, that's what we're trying to make happen. But that's not yet measurable. So we're, we're still in, in, in search of what are the measurable metrics that we can use to gauge engagement. And then for us, it's doubly important because we actually have customers. And in addition to wanting to know, are we succeeding, we need to be able to provide feedback to the customer of the conference organizer, you know, what kind of ROI are you getting? You know, I can't say you got 700 people that they, they could fairly respond uh, well, yeah, I sent you an email list of 700 people. <laughs> um, not a big accomplishment. But if I could say, well, look at all the interactions they're doing, look at the meetings they're scheduling, look at the way they're kind of in an ongoing way communicating with each other, uh, conference organizers get that that's valuable. They get that for every one of the recurring events, they create a community and those people are talking in the community and they're going to get a much greater recapture rate for future events because that we're right now working on how do we boil that down into some numbers that we can then explain to people and then monitor ourselves and then look at how our changes impact those numbers. So I guess the only thing I give you right now that I actually know is it's important to sign up conferences and to sell them. <laughs> um, we, we have revenue. We <laughs> right. We we have a we we have a a sales metric that we can use even being such a tiny young social media company that's rare that one's clearly important and obviously we track that but the, the important ones are going to be you know the users what are important their connections how they use this it's not valuable for the organizers if they don't use it in those ways so we're learning how to measure those things. What do you think is the biggest challenge you're facing right now? I would say that our biggest challenge is to establish a value proposition for the attendees so they see why it's better to engage through this kind of interaction than through other social networking outlets they already have available. Ironically, given the tremendous success and size and ubiquity of the huge ones, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the LinkedIn's, people see why this can't, this can't work on that. Because, you know, it, it either, it would just be drowned out if you tried and they don't serve it well. And if you look at what those organizations are doing in terms of groups or events, it's a little beyond check-in and maybe a limited communication access, uh, a communication opportunity. So it's not so much even in the comparison that they see it. It's that like, you know, oh, so I, you know, yet another thing I need to pay attention to. And making people not only see that the lack exists, but also see that this is a way to to serve that need is, I think, the big challenge, which might have been more simply stated as marketing and getting, getting our vision out there is probably a challenge because we have to balance that kind of communication to the community at large with the effort of working directly with conference organizers. It's a very easy trap to fall into to 
end up being a uh, service provider for conferences to provide them with software to make their conference organization easier or more effective. And it has to go beyond that. It has to be a primarily a value for the attendees so that they want to engage on this and so that it becomes valuable. Hey, my last three events are all on here and I kind of introduce people and cross connect and see that I attended these three things with that person. We obviously have a high you know, kind of interest overlap kind of getting that message across to people who will at least originally think of us as kind of an adjunct to the event they're attending is a big challenge. Great, great. Back to you for a moment here. What's one of the biggest lessons that you've learned as a businessman and and how are you applying that and what you're doing now? I would say probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned is to help people. My approach in doing things has always been to try to help everyone as much as I can and without some kind of narrow attempt to to consider what I'm going to get back in various kinds of interactions. Uh, I'm the kind of person who not only doesn't refuse to take tech recruiters phone calls but always talks to them when I'm hiring or not or whether I'm looking or not or whatever and I encourage them send me your new listings and you know I, I try to pierce my network and send back people who might be useful for them and that's always helped, but it's been a tremendous help since I started this business. You know, people have just been willing to work for me or, or to do a lot of different things on the promise of this idea. Now that I'm starting to look for more technological help and more people to help us build out, I post something on a, on a job board or a mailing list related to recruiting. And, you know, three recruiters call me and say, oh, I know you can't pay me yet. I know you can pay me if you can. Here's the best two people I know. That kind of thing that it seems to come back to you tenfold. So try to get out there and try to help people, uh, you know, and it, it does come back to you and people will try to help you. Let's, let's talk a little bit about transparency a little bit because you seem to be pretty, you know, upfront and frank and free-flowing with information about your company and what you're doing and what your strategies are. I know some of the other people that I've interviewed in the past, they like to talk about their company and their overall strategies, but they're pretty close to the vest with some uh, you know, some of their information and their numbers and, and that kind of stuff. Can you tell tell us a little bit about your thinking on that topic? Uh, you know, uh, do you see yourself as someone who's a little bit more transparent and forthcoming than others? And why do you think you're that way? Well, I do. I, I think that we're, we're living in a time when there's a great move towards greater transparency broadly, at least in our industry. But I'm probably even more so than is typical of the industry. When I started just conceiving of this business long before I did anything. The first thing I did is tell everybody I know that I thought was smart and might have anything to say, every detail I could think of of what I was trying to do. And um, since many of them were friends, many of them were prone to be politer than maybe I wish they should. So I'd, 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 I'd even try to develop strategies to convince them to tell me what was wrong with it rather than right. <laughs> saying, wow, it's great that you're doing that and that sounds fantastic and I'd love to use it because that's not... Yeah, I appreciate it, but it's not actually that helpful. A great strategy for that, if, you, if you're ever in that position yourself, is get them together in groups. Because you'll, you'll find somebody who has some kind of problem or something like that, and then they'll build on each other. And it'll end, you'll end up getting them playing off of each other and developing your business for you. So why don't people do it? Well, the leading reason people don't do it is that, I think, I, mean, I could be wrong, but my opinion, is that they way overinflate the importance of the idea over the execution. I forget who said it, but I read online, somebody said, you know, 
it's the greatest favor they can do if they go ahead and steal your idea when they hear it because it saves you the problem of uh, starting to you starting to succeed and then they go steal your idea. The idea is not the key thing. You find people who want to work with you. You find all kinds of advice. You help to shape the idea. You get the advantage of their brains, and you get to do a better job with it. And the execution is something that you that there's just no substitute for. I think that there are concerns of. I, I think I think that because anybody who's starting doing this as a startup, and maybe except for people who have done a lot of, you know, ground up, you know, startups where they've run the thing, you know, maybe they have a lot more experience. But most of us, like me, tend to have localized experience, probably very strong experience in a segment. Maybe they're great at sales and BD. Maybe they're great at marketing. Maybe they're great at product conceptualization. Maybe they're great at uh, engineering and, and technical execution. But probably not all of them. And the more people that you can talk to about those things, the more you learn and the better you get at all those things. And I think that people are somewhat reticent about doing it, probably in part because of some kind of embarrassment. You know, I mean, I wasn't ashamed to tell people that, all right, I'm starting to put together things like investment pitch decks and and business plans, and I want to do pro forma financials, and I have the first idea how to do that. (laughs) I have my back of the napkin projections that I'm going to do. And so, you know, in talking to people about those things, I exposed a lot of ignorance. And I found people like uh, a CFO I'd worked with in a previous organization who said, well, why don't I just help you do that? Right. <laughs> and, and, and that was great. And I learned. I learned how those things work and what the issues are and not only why you communicate them, but how they can actually be very helpful in exploring different scenarios, different funding scenarios, different time-to-sale scenarios, and what kind of decisions you can make as a result of it. But I think there's maybe an ego problem for some people in kind of allowing it to be known they don't just know everything about everything. I can't really imagine what the downsides are that people are avoiding. I guess maybe you could have some kind of impact in competitive situations, you know, letting, letting the... Let, let, letting the details of my deal out there in front of investors, and you know, maybe, maybe somebody could argue that that could that could influence their behavior in some way that was ineffective. But I have to believe that's outweighed by just getting people engaged with it. So that's great. No, thank you for that for that answer. You talked a little bit before about leadership. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What does leadership mean to you? What does it mean to be a good leader? I think that differentiating leadership from management, I would primarily focus upon being the ultimate person who's responsible for the vision. Um, it has to be shared. There has to be alignment. And you certainly have to listen to other people. There was somebody, uh, I, I think it might have been Jack Wells, who, who distinguished leadership from management of saying, you know, a manager might be the person who helps you trek through the jungle and make sure the supply lines of machetes are working out and that people are carving the right paths and everything's working out. And the leader is the guy who shimmies up the tree and yells wrong jungle. (laughs) Every day I'm down in the weeds of what we're doing and doing minor technical tasks and dealing with accountants and dealing with attorneys and making sales calls and doing all those sorts of things. I wear all these hats, but I can't ever lose track of where we're going and I have an internal and external, I guess, sales job every day of clarifying this vision and convincing other people that it's just absolutely critical and it's what we want to do and that it's important to do it and having everyone be excited about that and on board with that. And, and for me, that's the biggest part of what that means. So what advice can you offer to anyone who's thinking about starting their own business? 
Well, I've listened to some of your other talks, and, and there seems to be a big theme of just do it. Mm-hmm. And I definitely can't agree more with that premise. I mean, it's a big, scary thing to do. But if you have the sort of passion that makes you want to do it, and just start. And whether that means start while you're doing your current job or part-time or you know, help collecting other people who are interested, do what you can and, and start moving forward. And I don't want to contradict the dominant wisdom that it, it is a hard thing to do. It is, but, and there will be many problems, but it's actually easier than most people fear that it'll be. When you come face-to-face with problems you don't know how to solve or things that need to be done that you don't know how to do, you'll learn how to do it. You'll find the people who can do it and will help you, and, and you can get through that. And I guess for a, a very concrete advice, piece of advice, it's something I mentioned earlier in a different context, but I want to reiterate it in this context specifically. Once I was, even before I was completely sure I wanted to do it, and then certainly once I was sure but hadn't done anything yet, just find everybody you know who is intelligent and knows things about the industry or knows things about being in business and get them to listen to you and tell them absolutely everything. You know, it's a polar opposite from all the goofballs who start with trying to get them to sign an NDA. Just, just, just pour your heart out to these people and your mind. And you'll save yourself the first six months or a year of frustration in how much you'll be able to shape what you're doing just by getting it out there and talking to people. And I told my, some of my story earlier about hadn't thought about collecting investors. I found people wanted to, wanted to invest, so now we're moving much faster than we would have done if we hadn't. I told current, at the time, employers about it. And a lot of people think, oh, my God, if I did that, I'd be out of work the next day and it'd be a disaster <laughs> and I couldn't eat and stuff like that. And, and, yeah, who knows? Maybe you are in one of the rare environments where that would happen. Everybody there helped me. I got leads to people who are big conference organizers. I got advice about finance. I got advice about how to approach investors and an ability when it came time to arrange a soft landing for everybody where they could get a good transition into uh, you know other executive leadership and technology. And I could have to not put as much stress on my business financially in getting started. People will help you and they will help you shape your vision, talk to people, get help. You know, you can't do it by yourself in that sense. No, that's great. That's great advice. Thank you. Um, So tell us how people can find you and ConnectFoo. Well, we're ConnectFoo.com. You can send mail to me at Jeff at ConnectFoo.com. And it's pretty easy to find me on various social networking sites throughout the internet. I'm either Yoke or Jeff Yoke pretty much everywhere. And I would love to hear from anyone. Anyone who has any thoughts, any desire to be involved, uh, all the more if what you want to do is tell me I'm crazy and why. <laughs> you can just say you're crazy if you want to. I, I wouldn't mind that. But, but, but if you can say you're crazy for this thing that you said, you know, I'll learn from it. And I'm also happy to help any other entrepreneurs, any, any other technologists who are out there trying to do cool things. Let me know what you're doing and I'll try to help. Well, great. Thanks, Jeff, for coming on today and helping us. And, and, and we enjoyed learning a lot about uh, your business and ConnectFoo. And we wish you a profitable future. Thanks, Sean. listening to The Independent Entrepreneur. The show's theme song, Tommy in the Morning, is by Pete Hutlinger 
and used with his permission. All of the content on this show is copyright 2011 by Sean Salisbury. We hope you've enjoyed this interview. For more information and to listen to other interviews, please visit www.indiebizshow.com. That's www.indybizshow.com.